The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. What a, what a precious, precious meditation uh, to have. And that's exactly where we're uh, going to be taking a look at today in First uh, Peter as we think about uh, the suffering of Christ that ended in his triumph and his uh, uh, soon return as well. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to First uh, Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Uh, the last time uh, we were together in First Peter... We're exploring the the cosmic triumph of Christ on the cross, uh, a triumph that was even proclaimed to the evil spirits who are now in prison. And uh, what was the point of that proclamation? It was a a demonstration that there is not one creature in the universe that is not subject to King Jesus. Even, Even his enemies are a footstool for his feet. As Psalm 110 indicates in verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And as we saw last time, these evil spirits that were subjected to Christ were the same spirits who were behind the worldwide rebellion that took place during the time of Noah. And that's made clear in verses 19 to 20 in chapter 3, where it says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And the proclamation to the spirits in prison was not a call to repentance and salvation. It was a proclamation of triumph. Uh, the, the Greek verb that's used there for proclamation or preaching is not the normal Greek word for preaching the gospel. Uh, that's a different word. Euangelion uh, is the word that's used for the proclamation of the gospel. The word that Peter chooses is the word caruso. Uh, and that's a word that simply means to proclaim to herald, to cry out. And the content of that proclamation has to be defined by the context. And the context here is victory. In uh, verse 22, it speaks about Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus Christ is victorious. He's the one who triumphs. And this is where the text leads us to. That's the goal that we need to keep in mind if we're going to interpret this passage correctly, Christ is triumphant. And he deals out retribution to his enemies. And Peter's reference to the time of Noah is a vivid reminder of God's judgment against rebellion. The entire world of evil was drowned in the deluge of the flood. God washed away an entire generation of wicked and adulterous rebels. And not only that, but according to 2 Peter and chapter 2 and verse 4, those angels who assisted in this perverted rebellion, the Bible says God did not spare them. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 says God did not spare those angels, those rebellious angels, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So the flood of Noah becomes this vivid reminder of God's judgment. Judgment literally raining down upon an evil and adulterous generation. And that's how Jesus uses the illustration of the flood in Matthew chapter 24. It's a picture of judgment. Matthew 24 and verse 39 says, They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, 
so will the coming of the Son of Man be. But judgment is not all that the flood reminds us of. The, the flood provides us with a, another picture. And it's, it's like Peter can't help himself but to mention the other side of the coin. Because not only is the flood a picture of God's judgment and wrath against sin, it's also a beautiful picture of God's marvelous grace and salvation. And, and, and that's where Peter takes us before reaching his final destination. Again, the final destination is this triumph and ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. But, but he, he, it's like he, he has to take this detour. He just has to remind us about the other side of the coin. Before he gets to this final destination, he, he takes the scenic route because he wants to show us the salvation that we're also reminded of in the flood. You know, it reminds me of when uh, I'm driving with my family through a certain neighborhood and, you know, I remember that there's something around the corner. Maybe it's a, a restaurant or a landmark or maybe it's a person that I haven't seen in a while. And uh, I'll say something like, you know, hey, while, while we're in the neighborhood, you know, let's just stop by here for a moment. You know, and sometimes they appreciate it and sometimes not so much. But Peter is essentially doing the same thing. He says, you know what, while we're in the neighborhood of the flood, let me remind you of something else that this flood also reminds us of. This flood is also a reminder of the beauty of salvation, and I don't want you to miss that. And it's an incredibly encouraging picture. But it's often been, been misunderstood, and sadly it's been distorted. This beautiful picture of salvation has been distorted as some kind of defense of sacramentalism. And I, I just want to take a, a few moments to define that term before we, we jump in here. From the earliest times of the, the Middle Ages... Uh, that we looked at last week in our uh, uh, kind of exposition in uh, uh, First Peter and also taking a look at the life of, of John Wycliffe. At, uh, from the earliest times of the, the Middle Ages, uh, the, right up until the present day, the Roman Catholic Church has officially taught a view commonly known as sacramentalism. And it's a, a belief that certain sacraments uh, or religious symbols can grant or bestow grace. And some of these sacraments are even believed to be necessary for salvation. According to the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it states that some of these sacraments are necessary for salvation. One Catholic theologian described it this way. He says, the justification of the sinner is ordinarily not a purely internal and invisible process or series of acts, but requires the instrumentality of external visible signs, which either confer grace or augment it. Such visible means of grace are called sacraments. And uh, they're understood as, as signs or symbols that convey grace to those that receive the symbol of that grace. Uh, Millard Erickson writes this in his Christian theology. In the historic Catholic view, the sacraments are effective ex opera operato, or from the work done. This expression, which was used in the 13th century, was officially adopted by the Council of Trent, it indicates that the conferral of grace depends on the act itself, not on the merits of either the priest or of the recipient. So as long as the recipient is not resistant, and if the priest has been ordained, even if he's morally disqualified, and he's intending to perform the, the work for the, the purpose of which the, the work is intended, with the right procedures and the right words, you know, hocus pocus, some kind of change takes place. Just by the act itself. It's not even required for the person who receives the symbol to have faith. It's just ex opera operata. From the work worked. 
from the, the doing of the work itself that something takes place, which is Martin Luther says, turns the sacraments into something mechanical and magical. You know, there doesn't have to be any act or movement of the soul, no faith, no repentance. There doesn't even have to be an understanding of what's going on, which is actually how they defend infant baptism. Because a baby has no idea what you're doing to him. He doesn't know the difference between a bath and a baptism. The baby doesn't understand the work, but in their view, he doesn't have to understand the work for the work to work. But the scriptures consistently teach us against this kind of idea. Now, we're not taught that we receive the grace of salvation through sacraments, but we receive the grace of salvation through what? Faith. Through faith. Faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 22. It says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. It says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So consistently, when you study the scriptures to understand how are we connected to God's gracious gift of salvation, it's always through the instrument of faith and only faith, as the reformers would say, sola fide, by faith alone, right? And that's something that happens internally, invisibly, and it's not dependent on the church to give it to you. And that's really one of the ways the Roman Catholic Church would keep people bound in their grip. Because if you believe in a sacramental view of grace and you're depending on the working of the work to save you. And if only the ordained priest can offer that work, this view known as uh, sacerdotalism, then you must go to the priest in order to get it. Follow follow the, the logic here. If I'm depending on the work to work and only a priest can offer that work, then I'm now dependent on the priest to do the work. Because where else can I get grace from? I mean, I have to go to the church and I have to go to somebody who's been recognized by the church to give me the work because I need the work to work. And that's like I said, how the Roman Catholic Church kept people in their grip. You're forever bound to the system. Even if you disagree with what the church is doing, even if you believe that it's become corrupt, even if you're convinced that the priests are morally bankrupt, the idea is, well, where where else can I go to get the grace that I need? You know, it's like the the junkie who knows it's killing them, but you know, hey, what, what else can I do? This is the only place that I can go to get the work to work. B.B. Warfield, in his book, The Plan of Salvation, points out some of the tragic consequences of this kind of thinking. He says, number one, it separates the soul from direct contact with the immediate dependence on God. Instead of encouraging men to go directly to God for help, instead of encouraging the soul to to lean on God, depend on him, you know, I I lean on you, they're they're turned away to these mechanical concepts of salvation. They're dependent on the works. They're going to the works and the priests to do this work in order for them to receive grace. So it separates the soul from direct contact with dependence on God. Number two, it depersonalizes God. It treats God like as if he's not some personal being, but rather some kind of impersonal and natural force that just works as long as you push the right buttons. 
You know, he just kind of responds automatically whenever you get the formula right. You know, it doesn't depend on whether or not there's any uh, repentance or faith or even if there's a priest who's qualified. You know, as long as he says the right words, you know, things just automatically roll out. As if grace is some kind of, uh, you know, mechanical dispenser that, you know, as long as I get the buttons right and, you know, opens, you know, kind of like the Pez dispenser, I'll open up the, you know, the, the container and I'll get the candy on the inside. You know, as long as I do it right, you know, automatically grace will come down if I just get the words right and I'm at the right place. So it depersonalizes God. And number three, he says it deifies the priesthood. The Holy Spirit is made to be the instrument of the church. And the church uses the spirit to get the work to work. So rather than salvation belonging to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is now subjected to the control of men. Because men can work the spirit. You know, as long as I do the right thing, the spirit has to work. He works for me. Robert Raymond in his systematic theology writes, the sacerdotal vision urges that where the church works, there the spirit works. And also, apart from the church's sacramental ministrations of grace, there is no salvation. No salvation apart from Mother Church. If this is the view that you have, that you go to the priest to get the work to work, now you're dependent on the church for your salvation. And there's no salvation outside of that system. Evangelicalism, on the other hand, insists that not only is it God who saves, but that he saves by working immediately upon the soul, by his word and by his spirit. As the gospel is rightly proclaimed and the gospel mysteries are properly administered. So if your salvation was dependent on some external sign administered by the church, then you're dependent on the church and forever dependent on the church for your salvation. And salvation would be in part a result of human works, a result of human works. Now, we would teach that we'd be in disobedience to God and it would be sinful to neglect the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, you should examine your soul if you're neglecting either one of those. But your salvation is not dependent on those external ordinances. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy he saved us. The thief on the cross didn't have to offer any external deeds in order to receive the promise of paradise, right? But there are those who would say that 1 Peter chapter 3 overturns all of that. Because if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, it clearly says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Baptism saves you. And there's nothing you can do to convince me that I was not saved when I was baptized. Baptism saves me. I actually remember my, my grandmother uh, saying that, you know, I could just feel something different when I was water baptized. I could just feel it. I just felt different. It was, it was in the water that I was saved. And people would argue, you know, it was in the water. That's where the burden of my sin was lifted. You know, we even have songs that give that kind of impression, you know. I'm going to lay down my burden. Where? Down by the riverside. Where? Down by the riverside. Oh, down by. It's down by the riverside. Well, my question is, why wait to get down by the riverside to release the burden of your sin? An older version of this song actually made it more explicit what they were talking about. And it contained this line. That's why I'm going to the river 
to wash my sins away down by the riverside. But is that literally what Peter means here? That we go down to the water and that's where the change takes place by the work worked? Do we go to the river or to a pool of water or to some kind of baptismal font? Is that what's going on here? Is that what Ananias meant when he spoke to Paul in Acts 22 and verse 16? And he says, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. What's going on in these verses? And beyond that, what does baptism here have to do with Noah's ark and this proclamation to the spirits? You know, those are some of the questions we'll have to deal with as we start to get into this text. But what I don't want you to forget is that what we're talking about is a picture or an analogy. And that's an important piece, to, piece of the puzzle to keep in, in mind as we work through this text. Verse 21 opens up with these words, corresponding to that, or this symbolizes, or this is the like figure. The Greek word that Peter uses here is uh, anti-tupas. It could be translated as anti-type. It refers to the reality behind the picture. The reality behind the picture. And what Peter sees in the historical event of Noah and the flood is an analogy that pictures something that also happens to the believer. And this is going to be exciting to unpack. So uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll dig in here. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity to take a look at your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open it up to us. Help us to understand what's contained here. Uh, Father, I pray that we would see the beautiful picture of salvation uh, that we read in this text. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us, Lord, to rejoice in our great salvation and that you would help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at uh, verse 17. We'll start at verse 17. It says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. First of all, it's important for us to to pull back for just a moment before examining the details. Uh, If you remember the, the context in verse 17, Peter gives us the reason why we're in the middle of this conversation in the first place. Verse 17 says, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And then what follows is what Peter gives to us as a reason that we should suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And what's his reason? His reason is because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is the the prime example of righteous suffering. And that's where verse 18 fits in. For Christ also suffered or died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And what we have in verses 18 to 22 is a summary or an overview of the career of the Messiah. In verse 18, it lets us know that he suffered and died. In verse 19, that he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. In verse 21, that he rose again from the dead through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 22, he's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, powers had been subjected to him. So that the purpose behind placing Jesus here is to demonstrate that he is the perfect model for the believer. Jesus suffered, and so can you. But not only does this demonstrate that Jesus is the perfect model, it's also proof that Jesus is our perfect champion who has won the battle for us. In other words, Jesus triumphed, and so will you. Because what sense would it make to tell us about Jesus being made alive and triumphing over the grave and being seated in the most powerful throne in the universe if it had nothing to do with us? This victory has something to do with us as believers. And the point is, is that his victory becomes our victory. It's the victory that Jesus won for our benefit, for us. That's what verse 18 says. Christ also suffered or died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. He did this for us. His death and resurrection were for us. And we've been united to that work that Jesus did on our behalf. And one of the ways that scripture speaks about us being united to Jesus Christ, benefiting from his work, that what he did now becomes ours. One of the ways that scripture speaks about that is by using the word baptism. Why don't you take your Bibles with me? Just turn to a few passages. Romans chapter 6. Flip over to Romans chapter 6. Just to show you how Scripture uses this word baptism. Romans chapter 6, and we'll start it at verse 1. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. Again, think about all this language that it's using about our union with Christ. We've died, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become, what does it say? United with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What kind of baptism is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about a baptism into water? Water is not even mentioned in this passage. It's nowhere, nowhere in this passage. And he specifically says in verse 3 that we have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Uh, the Greek word baptism, baptizo, in the Greek is a, is a word that means to dip, to dunk, to sink, to submerge, to immerse. In secular Greek, it was used for uh, the dipping of a piece of fabric into a dye. Dipping a bucket down into a well, fully submerging that bucket into the well and drawing up water. It was used for a person or an object that perished in the water by being fully immersed, submerged underneath the water. It was used for people who drowned or ships that sunk. It was a word that meant to be fully enveloped in. Actually, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin all acknowledged that that was the meaning of the word baptizo. That's what it means. But Jesus and other authors would use this word, the same word, to speak metaphorically. This kind of dipping, being immersed, kind of being united with, 
they would use the same word to speak about other spiritual realities. For example, when Jesus wanted to speak about his death over in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, he says to his disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Is he talking about water? Water's not, not even in his mind. But he uses baptism to speak about his, his being fully immersed in death. He's speaking about his baptism into death. That's the reference that Jesus uses. He was about to be immersed in death. He was about to drink the cup of wrath and suffer death. It had nothing to do with water. And you find the, the word baptism consistently used in that kind of way. Luke chapter 12, in verse, 15, uh, in verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And literally, it says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Baptism to be baptized with. How do we understand the word baptism there? It's depending on the context how we understand the word baptism. He's not talking about water. He had already been baptized with water like three and a half years ahead of this time. But he's talking about a future baptism. I I have a baptism to be baptized with, but the context makes it clear that he's speaking about his death, his atonement on the cross. Another example, back in uh, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist predicted that the Messiah would come and provide another kind of baptism. Not, Not the baptism of water, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, in verse 11, uh, John the Baptist says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in that context, the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, represented salvation, and baptized in the fire represented judgment. Being, Being baptized by the fire was not a good thing in this context. Because the very next verse in verse 12, it says, He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And you don't want any part of that fire baptism. That's judgment. You know, there's this old saying I remember, you know, hearing, you know, I'm saved and sanctified, Holy Ghost filled and fire baptized. You don't want that fire baptism. Believe me. Okay. You don't want no part of that. That's a reference to being immersed in the fire in judgment. That's, that's not what you want, okay? Sound, might sound good, like a catchphrase. Holy Ghost filled, fire baptized, but you don't want that fire, believe me. But baptism can refer to a number of different things. And one of the ways that Scripture speaks about baptism is being baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul speaks about our baptism into Jesus Christ. We're baptized into, immersed in, enveloped in, submerged in, united with Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. It says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized, immersed, placed into, united with one body, into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
We're all baptized into one body, made to drink of the same spirit. And this is in reference to our union with Jesus Christ. And the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were immersed in him. You were united with him. You were made one with the body of Jesus Christ. And again, Paul's not speaking about water. He's speaking about our our union with Christ and water baptism is a symbol or a sign of that. But it's not the reality of that. The reality is that I've been united to Jesus Christ and now his life becomes mine and I am in him. I've been placed in him. How many times do you read in scripture that we are in him? We're in him. We're in him. Right. And his experience now becomes my experience. His life becomes my life. His crucifixion becomes my crucifixion. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. That's why Galatians chapter two and verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My my life is now in him. His crucifixion becomes mine. His resurrection becomes mine. His triumph becomes mine. Colossians chapter two, verse 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. He's alive and his life becomes my life. So now flip back to to Romans chapter 6, and this hopefully makes more sense to you. Romans chapter 6, because what we're talking about is this union with Christ, right? Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? His death becomes my death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, his death, my death, his burial, my burial. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, his resurrection, my resurrection, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the question is, is at what time does that occur? At what time does that spirit baptism happen where we've been placed into the body of Christ? When does that happen? When are we united to Jesus Christ? When are we united to to his life, his death, his resurrection? When does that happen? It's when you believe in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Christ. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. And how does that happen? The text says, through faith. It's through faith that you are baptized, buried with Christ, and raised up with him. It's in faith. It's through faith. Which is why Ephesians 3.17 says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's when we're united to Christ. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Philippians 3, 9, I may be found in him, again, united with him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I'm placed in him through faith. It's when we believe in Jesus Christ that we are baptized in him, we're buried in him, and we're raised to new life. With that in mind, flip back over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's take a look at verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to what it says here. For Christ also died for sins. Whose sins? Our sins, right? 
Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, think about the similar language. He died, I died. He's raised, I'm raised, right? In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. His triumph, my triumph. We were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then comes verse 21, corresponding to that, to this historical event that I just told you about, Noah and the ark and how they were saved, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. But what kind of baptism is he talking about? Is he talking about water baptism? The answer is no. That's not what he's talking about. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's all kinds of clues that Peter is not speaking about water baptism here. First of all, he speaks about a corresponding reality, corresponding reality. He says that baptism corresponds to or is pictured by something else that he just spoke about. And what is it that he just spoke about? In verse 20, he spoke about eight persons who were brought safely through water. Eight souls, according to Genesis 7 and verse 13, were saved. Noah and his wife, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, you know, totaled to eight people, eight souls that were saved. And people say, see, they, they came through the water. That's a picture of baptism. You know, Noah and his family, they, 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 they came through the water. And they were baptized by the water. Really? <laughs> Were Noah and his family baptized with the water? The answer is no. Who was submerged in the water? It wasn't Noah and his family. They stayed dry. <laughs> it was the world of iniquity that was submerged in the water. That's not the corresponding reality that Peter is talking about. Noah and his family were saved not by being baptized in the water, but by staying out of the water and staying in the ark. It was the world that was literally baptized. The water was judgment. So the water is not the picture that Peter is pointing back to. The picture that Peter is pointing back to is the salvation. The salvation is the picture he's pointing to. The water is not a picture of the salvation. The water was a picture of the judgment. And Peter is pointing to that reality. And corresponding to that salvation, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. The same way that Noah and his family were saved by being in the ark, you are now saved by being in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the corresponding reality. That's the connection. The only people who are saved were the people who were in the ark. And the only people who are saved today are the people who are in Jesus Christ. That's the connection. Jesus is the one who safely carries us to heaven's shore. So that he might bring us to God, chapter 3 and verse 18 says. Who brings us to God? Jesus brings us to God. How are we brought safely to heaven? Jesus brings us safely to heaven. What's the corresponding reality? The ark brought Noah and his family safely to the, the top of the Mount Ararat, right? They brought them safely through the water. Who brings us safely to our final destination? Jesus does. That's the corresponding reality. It's Christ who carries us to safety. One commentator, Alan Stibbs, writes, The ark passing safely through the flood provides a figure of God's method of saving men out of inevitable judgment. First, God delayed the day of judgment, long enough for an ark to be prepared. Then the souls that went into the ark were saved through the very water which drowned others, and because of it they passed out of the old world into a new world. 
When they emerged from the ark, they literally found that old things were passed away and all things had become new. The figure, he writes, is fulfilled in Christ. He was prepared of God to come in the fullness of time. The judgment due to sin and sinners, meanwhile, delayed. Then the judgment fell on him as the floodwaters upon the ark. And when sinners take refuge in him, they do not avoid the judgment due to sin. They are saved through it, falling on Christ instead of themselves. Instead of meeting their own doom, they are brought safe to him in God. The whole point of the illustration was to show how Noah and his family were saved from the waters of judgment. And we too are saved from the flood of judgment because we've been baptized into Jesus Christ, not by being baptized into the water. Number two, not only is it a corresponding reality, it's a spiritual reality. Another way that we know Peter is not talking about water baptism is because he says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. And you need to ask yourself, why did Peter even feel a need to mention that? Why mention that it's, it's, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh? Why is he telling us what he's not telling us? I'm telling you that I'm not telling you that. I'm not talking about this removal of dirt from the flesh. Why is he saying what he's not saying? It's because he suspected that people might be confused about the kind of baptism that he's referring to. He didn't want anybody thinking that the kind of baptism that he's referring to is physical. This baptism has nothing to do with the physical body. And that's how Peter uses the term flesh. It's, it's a reference to the physical body. Back in verse 18, in the same chapter, it says that Christ was put to death in the flesh. Speaking about his physical body. And Peter wants us to know that this baptism has nothing to do with the physical body. This is not about the physical act that removes dirt from the flesh. That physical act will not save you. The physical act will not save anybody. And that's the whole idea behind sacramentalism that we spoke about earlier. It doesn't matter how many times you're physically baptized. It will never be able to cleanse your soul. I remember uh, a story that my aunt told me about a friend that she had who was uh, entangled in a lifestyle of, of sexual sins. And she'd spend these long times in the shower. My aunt one day asked her, you know, why do you spend so long in the shower? And this was her response. I can't get myself clean. I can't get clean. A physical bath will never cleanse your soul. doesn't matter how many times you get underneath the physical water. It will not cleanse your conscience. It will not cleanse your soul. Our hearts have to be cleansed by faith. Acts chapter 15, verse 9. Speaks about God who made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. It's through faith that we're connected to the grace of God. And once God cleans us, we are thoroughly cleansed. Acts 11 and verse 9 says, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Have you been cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ? The baptism that will cleanse you is not going to be found in a pool of water. It's not going to be found in some kind of baptismal font. It's not down by the riverside that you'll find cleansing. The cleansing that you need is found only in Jesus Christ. It's only in being united to him by faith that your soul becomes clean. The filth that needs to be removed from your life is much deeper than water can handle. Water can't cleanse you from the filth that you need to remove from your life. Job chapter 14 and verse 4 asks this question, who can make the clean out of that which is unclean? And the answer is nobody. 
There's not a human person who can take care of the filth of our souls. Not a pastor, not a priest, not a ceremony. It's the Lord who has to wash away the filth of our lives as we cry out to him for cleansing. Look at verse 21 again. The baptism that we're saved by is not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's the cry of the soul in faith towards God. The appeal to God for a good conscience. It's it's an appeal to God to wash me internally. Peter uses the same word for conscience back in verse 16 to speak about the awareness that we have of right and wrong. In verse 15, Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord, where in your hearts. And then in verse 16, he says, and keep a good conscience. He's talking about what's on the inside. That, that word conscience literally means with knowledge. And every time we sin, there's at least two people who know what we've done. God does and we do. <laughs> we, we have that knowledge of sin and we can't get away from ourselves. How can we be cleansed? How do I cleanse the guilt of my conscience? Can I wash myself clean through ceremonies, rituals? The answer is no. Can I, can I work my way clean through good works? The answer is no. Can I imagine myself clean by just ignoring it? The answer is no. The solution for you to be cleansed is to make an appeal to God. Go directly to God. You don't have to go through the channels of a priest in a ceremony. You can go directly to God and appeal to him. God, cleanse me, wash me. We can go directly to God. I can make an appeal to God. And a good conscience is not self-generated. It comes from him. Hebrews 10 verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We can go directly to God and appeal to him to cleanse us. And again, that's not something that a washing in water can do. The third way we know he's not talking about a physical baptism is because this is a life-giving reality. You know that Peter's not talking about water baptism because of the connection that he makes between this baptism and the resurrection of Christ. Verse 21 again, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Peter makes clear is that it's through the resurrection of Jesus that we're brought safely to the other side. And there's, there's a parallel structure that Peter uses here. Think about this really quick. The connection is between the days of Noah and now. In verse 20, it speaks about the days of Noah. In verse 21, it speaks about now. There's a connection made between the few and those of you who are saved, those few who were saved then and you who are saved today. And then there's a connection between Noah and his family being brought safely through the water by the ark. And as we look to see what are we brought safely through, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus brings us safely from life, through death, all the way to God. It's through his work, through what he's done, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's through him that we're brought safely to God, which is exactly the point that Peter makes earlier in chapter 1 and verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how we're brought life. And we're brought all the way to glory. Why do I have hope in eternal life? Because I was born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Because he lives, the song says, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, oh, oh, (laughs) he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Jesus Christ lives. And that's where I find my safety. 
It's in, it's in the resurrection, the resurrected Christ. It's in the resurrected Christ. How do I know that Jesus can raise me? Because he raised himself. <laughs> he raised himself. John 10 verse 18. No one has taken it from me, my life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that's at work in us who believe and trust in him. It's not baptism that brings me safely to the shores of heaven. It's the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The resurrection proves the power of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, 4, it says he was declared the son of God with power. And we're connected to that power the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The moment we trust in him. Again, Colossians 2.12, it says it's not through the water, but through faith in the working of God. 2 Timothy 2.11, it says it's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. 1 Corinthians 6.14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise up through his power. I'm immersed, I'm enveloped in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's in him that I find safety. So what's the connection here? It's the connection between our union with Jesus Christ and Noah's and his family entering into the ark. And we're, we're saved. They were saved. We're saved. They were saved by getting into the ark. We're saved by getting into Jesus. What's the connection? The uh, connection is that we're both saved, but one is physical and one is spiritual. And in the same way that Noah and his family were saved and brought to safety, we are saved and brought all the way to glory. I found it interesting that there's actually a, a number of flood narratives that circulated around Asia Minor where Peter's writing to. So this was, would have been an important piece of history that the, the people would have recited often. And Peter says, let me pick up that picture and show you the beauty of our salvation in that. And how would this encourage persecuted believers? How, how would this encourage these people who are looking at a world that's uh, wicked and evil, turned away from God, even persecuting the saints? How, how would this encourage those people? I, I love this. Actually, Wayne Grudem uh, makes some of these connections. I thought these were helpful. He says, no one his family were a minority surrounded by a hostile world of unbelievers. And so were Peter's readers. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. And Peter encourages his readers to be righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Noah witnessed boldly to those who are around him to believe in God. And Peter encourages his readers to witness boldly to the unbelievers around them. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come. And we realize that judgment is soon to come. Noah was finally saved with only a few. And Peter encourages his readers that even though you're a few, even though you're a little flock, that you too will finally be saved. And at the time of Noah, God patiently waited for repentance from unbelievers before he brought the judgment. And the same is true of our world today. The God is patient. God is patient. In chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And I love the way that, that Peter puts that. You know, we, we know what it's like to wait. Some of us know what it's like to wait patiently. But what is it like for patience to wait? The patience waited during the time of Noah. It, it, it points us to, to just this, this incredible patience that God demonstrated on a wicked world. So what's the connection? The connection is that uh, you live in a wicked society. I know that. But, but keep in mind that God is being patient towards this wicked world. And while you're living in this evil and adulterous generation, don't forget who you are. Stand up. Be, be, be those who are a, a, a zealots for what is good. 
Open up your mouth and speak the words of righteousness and realize that one day God will take you from this world and bring you all the way safely to glory. That's the, the, the connections that we're to keep in our mind. But Peter doesn't stop with the resurrection. He also speaks about this triumphant reality, and we've covered this before, but in verse 22, he says he's at the right hand of God, speaking about Christ, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, and powers had been subjected to him. The right hand was the place of blessing, honor, power, authority. We've already covered before in uh, Psalm 110 that uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And when we speak about Jesus on the right hand of the Father in heaven, we're speaking about his equality with God, his authority over everything. And one of the ways that that's demonstrated is by his subjection of his enemies, angels, authorities, powers, just different ways of speaking about the various classes of spiritual beings. Do you think that would have made any difference to these believers who lived during a, a time when things seemed so much like they were out of their control? Like, like when it seemed like the world was being run by the enemy? Anybody with me? <laughs> we look around the world and it's being run by the enemy? That's the kind of world that we live in. What kind of encouragement would it have been to these believers to know that angels, authorities, powers are all subjected to Christ? It, it may look like on the outside that God is losing or that Christ is losing, but Christ is triumphant. And the readers of this letter are assured that the evil powers that seem to run rampant in this world are still subjected to Jesus Christ. That's, that's the point. As Luther said, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. And how about the believer who's wondering, is it really better to suffer for doing what is right? Is that that really better? Is it really better to suffer? I mean, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm suffering for it. Is it really better to suffer for doing what is right? And they're pointed to Jesus Christ who reigns triumphant, who's at the right hand of the Father, and who we will one day be brought and drawn near to. And uh, Jesus' exhortation for us is that it's absolutely worth it. And Jesus has entered into his reward, and one day we will enter into our reward as well. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the blessing of this passage. Uh, Father, I pray that you would remind us of uh, the victory that we have in Jesus Christ and the, the safety, the security that we have as believers because of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And uh, Father, we thank you for that union with Christ that we're saved by and uh, the reality that we are now placed in him. And just as the ark brought Noah and his family to safety, that we too will be brought all the way to God. Uh, Father, I pray that We'd be encouraged by these words. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you, Lord, would be honored through our lives, Lord, as we uh, dedicate ourselves afresh to you, to live for you, and to witness for you in a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, Father, we know that uh, the triumph of Christ is sure. And uh, because he lives, we will live also. And because he has triumphed, we ourselves will triumph. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org.
Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.